Welcome to Vertical Insights, a podcast series brought to you by CA Ventures, bringing you an in-depth look at the commercial real estate industry through the lens of CA's resident subject matter experts. I'm Robert Maddock. And I'm Megan Nam, And this is Vertical Insights. And for our next guest, we have with us David Lubovitz, Executive Director and Global Market Strategist with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Robert. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. David, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at J.P. Morgan. Sure, absolutely. So um, for the the better part of what's been almost 11 years uh, at this point, I have been a member of the Market Insights team at JP Morgan within the, the asset management group. Um, what we do in Market Insights is really try to, to simplify the complex and help investors and clients better understand the, the macroeconomic environment uh, and then obviously uh, what it means in terms of portfolio construction. So, um, you know, started my, my career at JP Morgan, uh, you know, more than 10 years ago as an analyst on the team, uh, spent some time in the UK helping to build out the program across. Uh, obviously, the United Kingdom and continental Europe as well. Uh, and for the better part of the past five or six years, uh, I've been in a strategist role. So spending about half my time conducting the research, uh, about half my time going out and, and speaking with clients. And again, you know, we, we do run forecasts. We do have forward-looking views, but we really believe that the, success, uh, the key to successful investing is not necessarily predicting the future, but, but rather seeing the present with clarity. So that, that's really what we try to do. Uh, within the context of our group, uh, which obviously sits within JP Morgan, lots of different strategy teams, uh, and we specifically sit within asset management. Fantastic. And, and David, as we kind of you know lead from that of what you guys do, can you give us a little bit of an update and the listeners an update of where are we right now in the markets and economy and where does the, your team think that we're headed? Sure. So, um, you know, I think that this is one of those times where where you want to think about the market and you want to think about the economy um, a little bit separately. So, so why don't we start with the economy uh, and then I'll talk a, a little bit about you know our high level views on the markets and, and obviously happy to to drill down further um, if that's if that's of interest. So, from an economic standpoint, you know, we think that 2021 is going to be a pretty good year. Um, to be honest, the U.S. economy has maintained pretty decent momentum uh, throughout this last wave of, of COVID um, that, that seems to be perhaps slowing down. But, but you know, if the past 12 months have, have told us anything, it's probably a little bit premature to be drawing any firm conclusions. Good momentum in comparison to what? Previous years or other markets? More, more, more with respect to other markets. And, and you know, the point I was going to make is that the vaccine rollout in the United States has, has gone far better than it has in places like Europe. Uh, with the exception of the UK. And so we, we think that that delays, not necessarily de derails, but delays uh, that, that recovery in Europe by a couple of months, whereby the US has maintained that momentum during the fourth quarter and into the first quarter uh, and is set for, for a very robust uh, 2021. And so we, we think that the general playbook here is that 
as the warmer spring and summertime weather begins to show up, as we get more and more of the population vaccinated, that should allow things to, to gradually come back online. And by the fourth quarter of this year, we, we think that, that growth will be downright boomy. And so, you know, 2021 is going to be a very good year for the economy. I would argue, though, that what we saw from markets in 2020, what was a pricing in right of this rebound in growth that that we're now seeing occur in in real time. And, you know, we, we think that, that that equities can do fine this year. We think high double digits, uh, low uh, high single digits, low double digits uh, when all is said and done is a perfectly reasonable uh, forecast to have. We simultaneously think that that while short term interest rates may remain low, uh, long term interest rates should continue to, to trend higher, but not necessarily at a speed or to a level where they would begin to impede progress um, within the uh, within the equity space. So very constructive on, on the capital markets this year, not looking for a repeat of the returns that we saw in 2020, uh, but again, still see upside and particularly when it comes to, to risk assets. I wanted to avoid the COVID conversation. It's something that obviously has come up in all of our conversations. <laughs> Um, but as you talk about it, it obviously created a lot of volatility, right? And and how do you see the rollout of the vaccine? And do you expect, and does the team expect markets to be as choppy as maybe they've been over the last 12 months? Or is this vaccine going to maybe smoothen out some of that volatility we've seen in both equity and fixed income markets? So I, I think we're in a little bit of a sweet spot right now where we're making a lot of progress on, on vaccines. I believe that last weekend we administered 4 million doses in a single day. Uh, here in the United States, you know, that's well above the run rate uh, that I think a lot of folks were, were expecting uh, earlier on this year. So we're, we're making good progress towards herd immunity. Uh, we think that we will get there by sometime during the, the, the summer, probably June or July. Um, that probably leads to a relatively low volatility environment here over the next couple of months. But I, I do think that that's going to change during the second half of this year. You know, my, my view here is very much that um, this is an environment of buy the rumor and sell the news, right? Everybody feels really good about solid growth this year, economy opening back up, people getting vaccinated. You know, I worry a little bit that we're going to get to the middle of this year. The economy is going to be reopened. People are going to be vaccinated and everybody's going to say, OK, well, well, what happens next? And what are they going to be looking at? Well, you know, infrastructure is a bright spot, but we're not going to see the same amount of stimulus pumped into the economy over the next 12 months as what we've seen over the last 12 months. Um, the Fed is, is as easy as can be. We think that they stay that way for the foreseeable future, but could very well begin to taper asset purchases uh, at some point in, in 2022. And so I think that there are a number of things out there which will create uh, uncertainty across the investment landscape. And we do expect volatility to, to kind of reemerge during the second half of this year as investors start thinking about you know, what lies ahead in terms of 2022 2023 and really begin to digest some of the long-term impacts and implications uh, stemming from uh, stemming from COVID. So what can investors who want to be invested and, and help dampen volatility do? So I, I think that there are a number of things that investors can do to address um, volatility. You know, one, one way is through further diversification to, to offset that volatility. Uh, the other is, is by taking advantage of that volatility. Now, let's start by ways that you can take advantage of volatility. You know, more flexible investment strategies, things like equity long short, uh, certain types of other hedge fund strategies like macro funds, 
certainly ways of, of taking advantage of, of volatility. And what we've seen is that the sweet spot for hedge funds in particular is really between 20 and 25 on the VIX. And so, you know, above where we were during the prior cycle, a little bit above where we are today, but, but not an unreasonable uh, amount above where, where we see volatility at the current juncture. Um, so that's the way you play offense. The, the way that we think that you play defense is by thinking about other ways of diversifying portfolios. I mean, the unfortunate reality here, and we saw it back in February and March, is that if the Fed says something that the market doesn't like, stocks and bonds both sell off, right? That's where we are today. And so we need a third pillar of diversification that, that clients can lean on, that investors can lean on to try to help mitigate some of that, that what I'll just call correlation risk. And you know, core real assets, things like real estate, and infrastructure are really interesting ways of, of trying to dampen volatility and provide further diversification to, to portfolios. You know, not only have these assets exhibited low to no correlation with traditional stocks and bonds uh, over the course of the past almost 15 years, but they also provide the income that we know clients are so desperate for in, in what is a, still a, a very low interest rate world. And so, you know, my thought here is that alternatives are very much moving from, from optional to essential and things like real estate and infrastructure that have long been the darlings of the institutional investment community are certainly going to begin to find their way into more, more average client portfolios, not only because of the role that they can play, but because the, the access is becoming increasingly open, right? You're, you're no longer forced to jump over as many hurdles, right? They're no longer the same time of lockups or, or liquidity requirements that we used to see for these private assets. And so to me, that's going to be a tremendous area of growth and focus for investors uh, over the course of the years to come. So David, you kind of hit on that, right? The access to some of these asset classes, specifically real estate and more so private real estate. Before we kind of dive into how investors can access these different areas, you know, on the real estate side, you have both public and private types of real estate. How would you have a conversation with an investor in, in, in trying to differentiate these two parts of the real estate market? Sure. So what I'll say is that over the long run, the performance should be the same, right? The difference is REITs, publicly traded real estate, are marked to market every day and private real estate is not. You know, my, my wife and I just moved out of New York City with our daughter. We bought a house in the suburbs. We like the price we paid, but we don't really know if that was the, the quote unquote right price. And so, you know, there, there's, there are more challenges when it comes to price discovery, if you will, within the private markets, but we really view the two as being uh, best used in, in tandem with one another. You know, the, the beauty of public markets is that when you see these bouts of volatility, you can end up with mispricings and you can take advantage of those mispricings in a way that you cannot on the private side of the equation. Uh, whereas when we think about direct real estate, private real estate, right, that's where we get more of the diversification benefit. Um, the income across the two tends to be relatively similar. And so, you know, by our lights, it's not about REITs or direct real estate. It's about REITs and direct real estate, because in theory, over time, the return should be the same. The real difference is, is with respect to the volatility component, uh, but we see benefits to, to both, uh, both types of assets. So you're basically taking a single asset class and diversifying inside of that asset class for diversification purposes of your entire portfolio. 
Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the the interesting things that we've noticed about alternatives is for investors that have traditionally operated in an environment of just publicly traded equities and fixed income, right, their idea of diversification is I should own a little bit of everything. And what we find with alternatives is that the approach should really be more outcome oriented, right? The, The question that the investor needs to ask themselves is, okay, what is the the problem I'm trying to solve? What is the challenge I'm trying to address? And then back into the asset, which provides that that solution or or that 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 addresses that challenge. And so, you know, when we think about real estate in particular, again, uh, do you not care about volatility? You just want the income. You want to be a little bit more tactical. Maybe REITs make more sense. On the other hand, you're looking for that diversification. You're looking for those more predictable income streams. Maybe a private approach is better if if that's the uh, the goal you're trying to achieve. But again, you know, start with the problem back into the solution. That's very different than the approach that, that everybody has taken in public markets uh, for the better part of the past, you know, 25 to 30 years. So as we sit here now and kind of pairing these last two conversations together, both the real estate conversation as well as the market conversation, right? I feel like we've been sitting here really since the global financial crisis saying rates really have nowhere to go but up. They continue to go down. Um, obviously, some volatility in the ten-year this year. The real estate market. You know, if you're thinking about the home you just purchased, right? You're probably more focused on the ten-year, on the thirty-year. Um, as real estate developers, right, and, and looking at more short-term, you know, the Fed has indicated that we're going to have lower rates on the short end for a, you know an extended period of time, maybe the next one or two years. Um, how do you view? these factors of rates into real estate conversations for investors when they're thinking about this from a portfolio and the just the complete uncertainty around what is happening in fixed income markets? Especially investors who are new to the alternative space. Sure. So um, what I would say there is, you know, we, we expect the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low for the foreseeable future. We expect them to keep short-term interest rates low for the foreseeable future. The Fed can only control the short end of the curve. The Fed cannot control the long end of the curve. And so, you know, our view here is is very much that that over the course of the next couple of months and and likely into 2022, uh, long rates will continue to to grind higher. Now, if we were to see a very sudden move in rates, you know, that's when I think you end up with, with a big problem. If we just take, you know, the affordability of real estate in the current environment, it's really, it, it looks good, right? I mean, despite the backup in mortgage rates that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, relative to, to the long run, you know, real estate can still be financed in, in a pretty favorable way. And so, you know, when, when we think about the, the impact of rates on alternatives and real estate specifically, it's really much more about the speed of the move than it is about the absolute level. You know, I don't think the 10 year is going to 5% by the end of 2022, absent some huge surge in inflation. So if we get to, you know, call it 3% by the end of 2022, and we get there in a fairly gradual way, right, investors can, can digest those increases in rates in a way that they can't if things jump, you know, we basically had a two standard deviation move in the 10 year during the first quarter and people that's, that's going to shock any, any asset. It doesn't matter uh, the asset class that, that you're discussing, but obviously this creates challenges for, for fixed income. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've been of the view of over these past couple of, of years is that fixed income is broken, right? The bond market today provides you with one of two things. It either provides you with, protection, but no income, or income, but no protection. The bottom line, though, is that all fixed income 
is sensitive to rates. At the end of the day, it's it's really just math. And so, you know, in, in my opinion here, this is going to be a challenging period for the bond market broadly. The, the first quarter of this year saw the worst returns for the Barclays Ag since 1981. I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily going to persist, but I would say that, that rising rates are a far bigger challenge, a far greater challenge for the bond market uh, than they necessarily are for, for things like real estate. So an interesting, another thing I want to bring up here is we just, we continue to kind of talk about investors diversifying their portfolios and, and using alternatives and even real estate to, to help dampen volatility and get other forms of growth in their portfolio. How would you differentiate the difference between U.S. and European real estate for investors' portfolios? Does a U.S. investor need to be concerned about adding European real estate to their portfolio or should they just focus on the country that they live in? So I, we, we frankly believe that there's an opportunity in, in real estate globally. Um, and, and one of the, the best examples um, of that is, you know, you think about the industrial sector here in the United States, uh, vacancy rates are low, yields are, are low, right? The assets are expensive, um, but everybody wants to own them because there's this big narrative around e-commerce continuing to grow as a channel through which people consume goods. So one of the things we did was we said, okay, Let's look at office yields and then industrial yields in different major cities around the world. You look at the, the tri-state area as an example, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. The two yields are, are fairly in line with one another. But as you look in markets like Europe, as you look across APAC, what you find is that office yields are far lower than the yield on industrial properties. And so to us, given what we've seen in the United States, where the two have effectively shaken out in the same place, you know, what that suggests about the rest of the world is that there's an opportunity to take advantage of mispricings, to take advantage of the fact that retail sales may not account for the same share of overall retail sales as they do in the United States. And so we think that, you know, for U.S.-based investors, there's really no issue with going abroad when it comes to real estate, um, because there are plenty of opportunities that we're finding. And it's not just within the industrial sector. You know, We're finding a lot of interesting uh, multifamily housing opportunities as well, as central business districts are redeveloped in a way that caters more to the needs and the demands uh, of the, the, the local population. And so to me, real estate is a very global asset class. And at the end of the day, it is the ultimate local asset class, right? Real estate is going to be driven by the market you're looking at. Um, you can see it in the United States, New York offices versus offices in places like Austin and Charlotte, right? Huge, huge absorption over the course of the past 10 years in Austin and Charlotte, not so much in, in places like, like New York. And so it's about finding those local opportunities and taking advantage of them rather than painting with broad brushstrokes um, when it comes to, to real estate at the end of the day. David, you mentioned something there, and you touched on this earlier too, of, of actually being guilty of this yourself, but the so-called flight from from urban to suburban areas and, and what impact that has had on, on real estate, but really the entire economy as a whole. Can you dissect that a little bit for us, the ripple effect, the recovery? So, you know, look, I, I think that, that places like New York and San Francisco and Chicago will, will always be major metropolitan areas. I, I think you know, two things have, have jumped out at me. One, this, this pandemic really just accelerated a lot of things that were probably going to happen anyway. You know, I have a, a daughter who's going to be two uh, in less than a month here. And I can tell you that a one and a half bedroom apartment in Manhattan uh, was getting a little bit tight 
at, at the end of the day. And so, you know, some of this is just the natural flow. Um, but the other thing I'll, I'll say, and this comes back to the point I was making about office space absorption, you know, you look at the absorption we've seen in markets like Austin, markets like Atlanta, uh, Dallas as well, and, and that has coincided with very robust household formation, right? So there's a tight, tight link between where the jobs are and where people want to live. And so I think that that's really going to be the key thing to focus on here going forward. New York will come back. I mean, we can you need more than two hands to count the number of times that people have said over the past hundred years that New York is dead. I don't believe it. What I do think, though, is that the working environment has become more flexible. What people are looking for, their preferences have shifted a bit. And that's led to, to somewhat of a sea change when it comes to, to residential real estate in particular. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see really what the working situation looks like on the other side of this pandemic, because if you no longer need to be in an urban area, I think you could very well see people choose to, to, to not do so. You were going right down the path that I wanted to ask and if people were coming back to the major cities. So I guess you will be in the office soon then at some point. We're not going to be at home. We'll be going back to the CBD. Uh, so, we, you know, my, my view here is that we, we're going to go back to work. We're going to go back to offices because for services businesses like we're all in, um, the most valuable capital we have is, is human capital, right? And human capital is best grown and fostered through in-person interaction. And so, you know, we will go back to the office. Are we going to be there five days a week for, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day? I think that on the on the edges, you may begin to see that that shift. But I always come back to, to something that a professor said to me at one point, you know, it's, it's really much more about peak load, right? And so you don't build an office building to house the number of people that are going to be there on a Friday in, in August. Right. You build an office building to be able to house your entire employee population on a Wednesday in, in March. And so we, we still need offices. Offices are not going away. I think the name of the game, though, is going to be flexibility. And that's going to be flexibility in, in where you work, in, in how you work. You know, those are things that I don't necessarily are going to go think are going to go back to the way they were. Um, you know, offices are going to be around, but we're going to be more flexible both within the office uh, as well as in terms of whether or not we're, we're there at any given point in time. And so, you know, it's I always come back to the idea that that the prudent investor doesn't complain about the hand that they've been dealt. They play the hand that they've been dealt. And, and this is the hand that we've been dealt. And so the question isn't, you know, oh, I don't want to go back to the office or, oh, I can't wait to go back to the office. The answer is, if there's going to be a more flexible working environment going forward, how can we take advantage of that, you know, within the context of, of our portfolios? So the big resounding kind of overall theme I'm getting from this is the world's not coming to the end. Volatility is normal. Look for ways to diversify portfolios and keep your eyes on the long-term goal and not the short-term noise. I, I think that that's a fair way to put it. You know, I was saying to a client the other day that the past 12 months have been all about the macro, right? It's been about the virus. It's been about fiscal policy. It's been about the Fed. Um, going forward, it's going to be more about the micro. It's going to be about earnings. It's going to be about valuations. But most importantly, it's going to be about building portfolios and taking advantage of the broader opportunity set that exists today. You know, it's, it's no longer about traditional 60-40 stock and bond. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to generate the amount of return that most of our clients need. And as a result, we, we need to paint with more colors. You know, back to my daughter, she would much rather color with a box of 24 crayons as opposed to a box of 12. 
And I think when investors go and, and build portfolios going forward, it's going to be about those 24 crayons, not the ones that perhaps they've gotten comfortable using uh, over the course of the past 25 years. So when we usually end most of our conversations, David, with some of the presence of our different business lines here, we ask them where they're going to be for their business in five years. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you where you're going to be in five years, but I'd love to know, as you've talked about the rise of alternatives and the use of alternatives investors' portfolios, where do you see in five years alternatives playing a role in your traditional 60-40 investors' portfolio? So, you know, if I if I had to try to put a number on it, I, I think that the 60-40 is going to fade into the background uh, and, and you're going to see more sizable allocations to, to alternatives. You know, I, I was looking at a portfolio the other day. It was 50-30-20, right? 50% equity, 30% fixed income, 20% diversified alternatives. So real estate, hedge funds, infrastructure, private equity. Again, you know, these assets have really transitioned from being optional to essential. And as we discussed earlier, with the barriers to entry gradually being being reduced here, you know, we think that the average investor is actually going to be able to take advantage of these things going forward in a way that simply has not been possible. Uh, you know, over the course of the uh, of the past couple of cycles. And so I, I think the story around alternatives is very much one of growth. And I think that the story around portfolios is, again, taking advantage of that broader color palette uh, when it comes to, to putting them together. David, thank you very much for your time. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the conversation. Of course, it was my pleasure. Thank you again for having me.